0: Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month program. This is Steve Anderson. For over 20 years, we've talked about a chronic epidemic in dentistry that we call approval addiction. Everybody wants to be liked, especially when you're in a profession where patients come in daily saying, I hate the dentist. By being liked, it becomes a subconscious objective and not necessarily means to an end. The practice and all the relationships in it start to come unraveled because of it. Dr. Robert Glover holds a PhD in marriage and family therapy. He is the author of a book entitled, No More Mr. Nice Guy, a proven plan for getting what you want in love, sex, and life. He leads seminars and workshops and offers online courses and consulting on dating, relationships, work and career. He splits his year between Bellevue, Washington and Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and he spent thousands of hours working with couples and has appeared on Fox News, The O'Reilly Factor, and many other TV programs. Dr. Glover has used his proven strategies to help thousands to build healthier relationships and enjoy life with real confidence. With that, we welcome Dr. Robert Glover as this month's Crown Council Mentor of the Month. Dr. Glover, welcome.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. That... Introduction sounded pretty impressive.
0: Well, we're glad to have you with us, and maybe maybe you could start with defining nice guy syndrome because it it's a little bit deceiving on the if you just take it at face value. So tell us what the nice guy syndrome really is.
1: Well, and that that's a good point that it it it'd be. Uh, a mistake to oversimplify it and during the interview we'll talk about a number of ways that nice guy syndrome is manifested both in belief systems and in behaviors but if if we were to put it really simply a, a nice guy is a person who believes they have to be good enough in order to be liked and loved and appreciated and that's often what it boils down to It's often an unconscious and we'll talk more about this but an anxiety driven um paradigm of the world, a roadmap of the world that says, if I'm good enough, if I do everything right, if I make people happy, if I don't make mistakes, or at the very minimum, if I hide the mistakes I do make, then I'll be liked, I'll be loved, I'll get my needs met, and I'll have a a smooth, problem-free world.
0: Okay, so what's wrong with that?
1: Okay, well, there's, there's a number of things wrong with it, and let me begin by by laying out what the basic paradigm is of nice guy syndrome. And when I talk about nice guys, I know you have listeners that, that are both men and women, and and some of the people listening are perhaps nice guys, nice girls themselves. Perhaps some are in a relationship or work with a nice guy or a nice girl. And and instead of trying to you know break it down, girl, guy, I, I mainly work with men these days, so I'll mainly speak. Um, you know, in in Using the male uh, pronoun, and I'll speak of men and guys, but just translate it to you know to to your own particular situation. So the the basic core paradigm of the nice guy syndrome and of a nice guy or a nice girl is is made up of three what I call covert contracts now these covert contracts are covert because they're often unconscious to even the nice guy himself and they're they're not spoken or made manifest to the people or the world around the nice guy and these these basic three covert contracts are this the first one is if I'm good enough then I'll be liked and loved and appreciated. The second, if I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, they will meet my needs without me having to ask. And then the third one is, if I do everything right, so there's a perfectionism in there, if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free world. Now every one of these covert contracts is an if-then mentality, which, is, which all contracts are. And so one of the primary reasons why nice guys, why there's a problem with it, and why nice guys often are not nice is number one they're operating from these covert contracts they have an agenda There's strings attached to everything that they do whether it's you know smiling or being nice or polite or opening the door for you or going the extra mile or helping you you know you know jump your car or whatever it may be there's an unconscious unspoken contract that I'm doing this so that you will like me love me and appreciate me or I'm doing this so that you will do something you know equally nice for me in the future or I'm doing this so that you'll Never get mad at me, and so that I'll never have any problems in this world. And so there's there's a, for lack of a better word, there's there's a, du- a duplicity, a lack of integrity with nice guys, which is is actually paradoxical because nice guys and tend to believe that they're really good guys, right? They they would never think that they were duplicitous or that they lacked integrity, but they do. Now a few other manifestations of the problems with nice guys is that nice guys often are very frustrated. Because nobody else knows about their covert contracts and maybe doesn't appreciate them in the way they want to be appreciated or give back to them in the way they want to give back, nice guys often get frustrated. They get resentful. And a a core characteristic of nice guys is a passive aggressiveness. And, And basically what that is is an unconscious, indirect expression of anger. Instead of saying, I'm mad at you because, you know, you showed up late for work, that he would make an indirect comment or you'd find out that he'd been gossiping to somebody else later on about it. So there's that passive aggressiveness with nice guy syndrome. And then uh, a very core part of it is that nice guys are fundamentally dishonest. They're not going to tell you what they really think, what they really want, what they really believe, what they're really going to do, what they really feel, what they've really done in the past. They're going to tell you whatever they think has the most chance of getting approval from you and the least chance of upsetting you or rocking the boat in any way. So that's just a few things we can kind of just start with and go from there.
0: Okay, so right there, I'm, I'm going to tell you that a lot of people that are listening, when you say that they're fundamentally dishonest, Everybody probably just said to themselves, well that's not me, so none of this applies. Can okay. You <laughs> explain explain the dishonesty part because I think that's that's a part that's it's a little bit misunderstood, but explain the what that really means.
1: Okay. So I'm I'm a recovering nice guy, and so I'll probably give examples of, of both my own process from time to time as well as other other men and women that I've worked with. But I grew up believing I was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. And and I thought that I'm I'm a good guy, I do things right, I don't break the law, I don't hurt people, I don't make up lies, you know. But what, what I didn't realize is in addition to, as I mentioned, the covert contracts, is that I wasn't honest, meaning that if I thought somebody would be mad at me I wouldn't tell them the whole truth I would leave something out or I would shade it in a certain way or I, I would misdirect their attention to something else now I'm, i might not go around spreading lies about myself saying I was something that I wasn't but when it came down to trying to manage my anxiety and we'll probably talk about that quite a bit during this this session Because that's what nice guys do. They spend most of their energy managing their anxiety. If I thought somebody would be upset at me, that they wouldn't like me, that they'd get angry at me, that they would leave me, I would say whatever it took in order to manage that situation, to keep it calm and under control, which is that part of that third covert contract, is that we want everything smooth and problem-free.
0: All right, you got to repeat that because I think that's – in in dentistry that is one of the especially in management one of the biggest things so you said they say whatever they gotta say to keep everything running smoothly did I did to, I get to, that to,
1: to keep the peace to make sure everybody still approves of them nobody gets upset at them nobody gets pissed off now all the way from personal relationships where this is is the most crucial of course because uh, the you know the people you shouldn't lie to are the people who trust you the most. But if you're a nice guy, if you're afraid of, quote, getting in trouble, and that's one thing I often tell nice guys, you can't get in trouble, right? You're an adult. If somebody's <laughs> upset at you, you're not in trouble. Somebody's just upset. That's all. That's all that it means. And it usually means they're going to get over being upset in a short amount of time and life will go on. But but nice guys are like little children. With that, we we don't... Nice guys just hate any kind of chaos, turmoil, and that includes anybody possibly being upset, uh, angry, uh, disappointed. Those are huge core dynamics for nice guys. And because of that, we'll say or do whatever is necessary to keep the peace, not rock the boat, not upset anybody, to soothe anybody's feelings that might be upset. And so the bottom line is, is that nice guys lack integrity. And again, as you said, most nice guys will say, well, "But wait a minute, I, I'm a good guy. <laughs> but, but, but here's the core problem with it. Uh, a person of an, of an integrity, and this is how I define integrity, but a person of integrity asks themselves, what do I believe is right? What is the right thing to do? Now, it is subjective, but, but that, that's always the case. What do I believe is the right thing? What do I want? What feels right to me? And then they do that now there's two ways to be out of integrity but only one way to be in integrity the two ways to be out of integrity is number one never ask yourself what feels right what seems like the right thing to do what do I want what's important to me and then the second way to be out of integrity is if you do ask yourself you don't do it you give in because you're afraid that might upset somebody or they might get mad now the only way to be in integrity is to consistently ask yourself what's right what feels right to me and then to hold on to that even when you feel anxious you feel neurotic guilt or when somebody's putting pressure on you to to alter or change that and that's a pretty high standard and and that is the people i work with that's the standard we shoot for is to live with that kind of integrity that no matter what you say or do or how you act, you, it's a conscious process that says, "Yeah, that in that moment, that felt like the right thing for me to do, so that's what I did."
0: Got it. Okay. So, would it, could I s- simplify this by saying that the common denominator of the whole nice guy syndrome is the seeking of approval in inappropriate ways? Is that is that a fair summary?
1: that that's a fair summary that's probably not the entire manifestation of nice guy syndrome but that really is the core and most visible and if you want to break that down even further in fact The the piece I'm going to add to that is something that I'm not sure I was really even completely aware of when I finished the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, uh, About actually finished it about 11, 12 years ago. It was published about eight years ago. But the the deeper piece of that is that Nice Guy Syndrome is fundamentally an anxiety-based disorder That everything a nice guy does is trying to manage his anxiety. He doesn't want to feel anxious. So that constant seeking of approval is one way that the nice guys try to manage their anxiety. If nobody's upset at them, okay, everything's all right. And and so that 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 is a very core manifestation of that anxiety management process.
0: All right, so talk to us about why this really is a problem. And if if let's say I'm still in denial, I might have this problem where where do the symptoms where does the evidence show up in my relationships that maybe I've got the problem?
1: Well, where they're going to show up, both in in your personal relationships and in the workplace, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of you know hit at both of those. Personal relationships, as I said, if if you're not saying what you think, what you want, if you're hiding things, if you're avoiding conflict, a few things are going to happen. One is that it's going to drive your partner crazy or the people closest to you crazy, and. Usually, the people that you know that discover my book, the ones that latch onto it the most quickly are actually the partners or former partners of nice guys because the nice guy is actually thinking he's doing everything right he thinks I'm a good guy how come how come everybody doesn't universally appreciate what a good guy I am and but the partners. Are frustrated because they they never know what he's thinking. They never know what he's feeling. He'll say one thing one time, change it another time. He'll tell one person one thing, tell another person another thing. So the partners often report is just that ongoing frustration of not really knowing him and not really knowing they can trust him, they can believe him. Finding out he'd been upset about something for weeks or months and he never told them. Uh, find out he wanted to do something, but he didn't tell the partner he wanted to do it because he's afraid the partner might be upset or say no so he just kept it in and felt resentful but the most common dynamic that you'll hear the partner of a nice guy talk about is the passive-aggressive behavior of the nice guy not only can they not trust them to tell the truth or be transparent but when they're least expecting it they've all of a sudden got these little daggers in their side and in their back of where the nice guy just poked that little dagger in and gave it a little twist all the while smiling and the daggers are that passive aggressive resentment frustration i 've done this all, all this for you. How come you don 't do it back for me? How come I try to fix everything and make everything better but you 're still moody you 're still angry you still don 't appreciate me so that 's a core place in 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 relationship is build, is is the mistrust and the passive aggressive behavior in, in the core relationship. In the workplace where I see it, also it can it can get played out in people not knowing what they can really trust with a person. You know, some of your listeners probably have had a nice guy boss who told one person one thing and then totally reversed him or herself with another person because they wanted both people to be happy and not be upset at them. Maybe they would say they're going to do things and not follow through, which is a huge nice guy pattern. And another almost universal nice guy pattern is procrastination. And and of course that can affect personal relationship, it can affect work. If you tell your partner, yes, I'm going to do that, and your partner trusts you and believes you're gonna do it, and then you don't, and you don't. And they hate to bring it up, but they do. And now the, the nice guy feels picked on because you brought it up. Yeah, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, I've just been busy. Same thing in the workplace. And, and that procrastination in the workplace leads to another really core issue with nice guys. In fact, I teach an entire online class and it's called nice guys don't finish last. They rot in middle management. <laughs> and, and the core problem there is usually because the nice guy is conscientious enough to do a pretty good job. I mean, yes. because they do want to do things right, but because of that tendency, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to upset anybody. They don't want to have a boundary. And because of that procrastination thing, often Nice guys do well, but not real well. And and you probably see that with a lot of people in your profession.
0: So they get stuck.
1: They get stuck, whether it be in relationship, work, career, it doesn't matter because if you're constantly trying to manage the people and the situations around you so that you never have to feel anxious, you, you don't take risks, you don't challenge yourself, you don't tell the truth, you you, you don't you don't lead. And so there's nothing for anybody to follow. So there's just a stuckness there.
0: Okay. You've done a great job of framing the problem and also the symptoms so that I think everybody can recognize what this is. So you talk about, you've got some terminology to use. You talk about attachments. You talk about the victim triangle. Uh, Maybe you could just characterize a few of those things for us so that uh, we can kind of recognize some of these signs and symptoms.
1: Okay. Well, the, the attachments are, are basically whatever in our mind we believe gives us a sense of worth or value or lovability. Um, it, it might be that we smile a lot. It may be that we believe we treat everybody well. It may be because we think we're handsome or good looking or that we're really smart or that we're funny. And, and what it goes down to is, is at the very core of the nice guy syndrome, we don't believe we're good enough just as we are. Okay, that's down at the very core of the nice guy syndrome. Now, there's different terms we can call that. We can call it shame. We can call it inadequacy. Um, I'm not a big fan of the term uh, self-esteem, um, mainly because it's not particularly measurable, and I'm not sure if it's curable or uh, you know. I don't think it's a, a very workable term. But at the core of the nice guy is is that belief? I'm I'm not good enough just as I am, and typically the reason that that people feel this way, whether it's a man or a woman, is because without going too far into it, in childhood, we tend, we're tend we fairly narcissistic as children. In fact, I'll take that back. We're extremely narcissistic as children. We believe the world revolves around us, and we are the cause of everything that happens to us. So it, when a child has a negative or a painful experience, whether they, they're, they're hungry or they're, they're, they're wet or they're, they've been abandoned or screamed at or shaken or frowned at or, or whatever, the child always believes, I caused that and this thing happened to me because of something about me. So it's a pretty common belief that most of us grow up into adulthood with a pretty deep core belief that I'm I'm, I'm flawed in some way, I'm defective in some way. And we all then try to manage that belief because we don't like feeling that way. Well, with the nice guy, the nice guy will manage that core belief, whether he's aware of it or not, by creating these attachments. And, and kind of one example I'll sometimes give is kind of like the nice guy is a coat rack, and everything he hangs on the coat rack are the things that he believes give him worth or value. But if you take all those things off the coat rack, he's just a plain coat rack that's not worth much. So – Again, a a nice guy might get attachments by being a good worker, by trying to be a good lover, by smiling all the time, by performing well, by never upsetting anybody. There's a number of attachments we might create. Now, the problem is, is we get attached to those attachments. And and we think that's what makes us valuable or worthwhile and what's going to make people love us. But the truth is, as long as we're kind of presenting those attachments as who we are, people don't really get to know who we are. And then if those attachments, for example, get taken away, we can be devastated and, and it can lead to, to severe depression and insecurity and anxiety. So like, for example, uh, I'm sure some of your listeners, one of their attachments is their profession. You know, this is, this is not only what they do, it's who they are. You know, I'm, I'm a dentist and I'm a good dentist and I'm recognized in this way as a dentist. Well, what if that got taken away? I, I had a plastic surgeon who uh, I worked with a, a while back and, and he hurt his hand in actually a skiing accident. He could no longer perform plastic surgery. and And for some people that would be devastating to have that thing that you use as your identity, that attachment taken away. So if it's your looks, if it's your humor, if it's your intellect, whatever you're using to get value not only do you become dependent in a sense on that that that, that's what you play right you're not just you 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 put all that out there love me like me value me appreciate me pay me whatever the case may be But that prevents you from just being you and it prevents you from just letting people know you get to know you it prevents you from being able to just make a mistake and take ownership of it and learn from it and 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 improve on it because if your value comes from being perfect you you can't take ownership of things like that so so that's the attachment thing now in terms of of the victim triangle and and this is a core part of all codependency or, or nice guy behavior is part of our attachment is I'm a good guy I do nice things for other people I help people out I help them solve their problems I, you know I fix things for them now where this can kind of turn into a major problem for nice guys is because one of our attachments is that fixer identity, that caretaker identity, and we think we get value from it. Guess what kind of people we tend to attract to ourselves?
0: <laughs> people who need to be fixed.
1: Exactly. Well, there's, there's dentists. Everybody walking in needs something <laughs> fixed, exactly. right? Exactly. You got it. So, so that will get manifested in all areas of life. In fact, a lot of the helping professions are um, – populated by codependent people, by nice guys and nice girls. Uh, it's especially true of nursing. It's especially true of social work. It can often be true of primary education. It's often true of therapists. It can be true of ministers. And, and I assume that you know, it's true with with dentists as well. Okay. So if that's our identity, that we, we, we get value by helping people, fixing things, doing good things, giving people things, being nice, being accommodating, the, the triangle kicks in when we're doing all of those things from that nice guy place. Well, because of our, our contracts are covert, nobody else knows that we now have an expectation that they like us back, appreciate us, value us, compliment us, never get mad at us, because nobody knows that's the contract we're operating by. At times, people don't appreciate us as much as we think we should be appreciated. They maybe get mad at us. Maybe they're... Moody, maybe they don't call for a while, maybe they're not as expressive as we would like them to be. And, and and the nice guy will basically overreact almost any emotional state anybody has anyway. But so the person isn't giving back what it is they're supposed to give back according to the contract. So then the next part of that triangle is we go from being that caretaker fixer into feeling persecuted in a sense. We're feeling resentful. We're feeling done to. Now, maybe nobody's even done anything to us, but because of our contract that we gave of this, we did this, we should be appreciated, valued. They shouldn't get mad at us, you know, call us a name, you know, gossip, spread, whatever the the contract is, we feel persecuted. And then from that passive, resentful, done to place, we often then go to the third part of the triangle where we actually become the persecutor We become the person that lashes out, that maybe is mean-spirited, that's sarcastic, that makes jokes that aren't funny, um, that gossips, that puts people down, And, and then... Once we do that, and if we get called on it or somebody gets upset about that, we then now go back into our anxiety mode and we go back to the top of the triangle and start trying to be nice and caretaking and fixing all over again because we don't really want anybody upset at us. And then the triangle just keeps going from that fixture place to that feeling persecuted, done to, resentful, into the persecutor, passive aggressive, lashing out, resentful, and even into what my ex-wife used to refer to as a victim puke, where you store all that stuff up nobody knows anything's wrong one day out of the blue you're yelling and you're screaming and you're throwing a tantrum and a tirade and the other person's going what the hell just happened here well that's a victim puke and if you've ever been around a nice guy you've probably witnessed a victim puke or two
0: all right so talk to us how you how do you get out of this trap if if some of those symptoms resonate with somebody who's listening what is the prescription doctor
1: well there 's not a shot or a pill we can give but i 'm going to tell you um, i 'm going to tell you some of the things that I did when I began to realize I was a nice guy, because uh, like I said, I was walking around thinking I was the nicest guy. I was a therapist at the time. Um, the, the person I was married to kept reminding me that i wasn 't such a nice guy and um, and then so I started, actually started going to, to counseling as I a, was a therapist, but i 'd never really been to therapy before, so I started going to therapy, and quite honestly, I started going to therapy to figure out. Why my then wife didn't appreciate me or like me for all the nice things I did for her and why she still got angry at me and didn't want to have sex with me and all those things. And then... I was, as a marriage therapist, I started noticing a lot of my clients who were coming in with their partners were saying the same thing I was. I could finish her sentences. The guys were saying, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever want to meet. I'm so different from her ex-husband or her ex-boyfriend or her father, but she doesn't appreciate me. I always give, and I never get anything back. When's it going to be my turn? So what what I started doing and what I started helping other nice guys do is, number one, I tell nice guys, if you realize you're a nice guy, go find some safe people to begin working with. Now, the safe person usually should not be your partner, your business partner. It could be your best friend, perhaps, but perhaps um, a, a minister, a rabbi, a therapist, twelve-step group. And and this is not to imply that we're we're so messed up we need therapy because I don't tend to think of therapy that way. But here's one of the core things of nice guys because we don't believe we're okay just as we are and we have to hide everything about us, I found it's extremely important that we go to, to a safe person or a safe group of people and begin revealing ourselves. Begin revealing the things about ourselves that we really don't want anybody to know about us. All those things we have to keep secret or keep hidden that we're afraid of people know about us, they'll be disgusted or they'll leave us or they'll scream at us or whatever. Go find safe people and start revealing who you are. And begin peeling that back, you know, like the proverbial layers of the onion, and start showing safe people who you are so that you can begin accepting you as you are. As a flawed person, a perfectly imperfect human being, not somebody that has to do everything right, get everything right, and always be right. So that's the first place I recommend starting out, with a safe person to begin revealing yourself to. Not only to to peel back those layers of the onion, but to begin to to get support that you're a decent human being just as you sit, not because of your attachments or anything that you do. So that's a good place to start.
0: You know, as distasteful as it sounds, some in in reading the stuff that you've written, it sounds like some guys really need to step up and reclaim their manhood. I mean, that's kind of what what I what I read out of your stuff. What, tell us why that is, and what do they need to do?
1: Well, I'm I'm laughing, Steve, because in in the notes you sent, you you mentioned that same term, the distasteful, and 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 it's kind of interesting that you use that word. I'm laughing because. We, we live in, a, in, in a, a post-feminist era where a lot of men grew up hearing negative messages about men. About masculinity, um, you know that you know the bumper stickers that that you know were demeaning towards men and and basically you know kind of the angry side of feminist uh, viewpoint that men were the cause of all the problems in the world that yeah. the patriarchy was the cause of all the problems and Gloria Steinem that said a woman needs a, a man like a fish needs a bicycle and she later married a very wealthy guy, um, <laughs> but but yeah so you, even though you said it's kind of distasteful that we might have to man up a little bit. Um the the truth is yeah if if you're a guy one of the things that i found with many nice guys and and I, and I get we have nice girls listening to this as well and i think the, the the same dynamic is often true for nice girls but with a nice guy one of the th- one of the attachments of a nice guy is often that he believes he's different from other men and this often goes back to, well it goes back to a number of things it can go back to childhood where he tried to be different from his father, who was either absent, perhaps, or angry, or controlling, or maybe his mother gave him all kinds of negative messages about his father or about men. And I hear that a lot from a lot of the guys I work with that they didn't have a close bonded relationship with their father. Um, as I said, kind of the angry side of feminism in the 60s and 70s, I know it affected me and affected a a lot of other men that I don't want to be that bad man I want to be a good man I don't want to be a jerk like the bad men and then um if you think about it uh, I ask a lot of guys when I'm doing workshops or seminars I'll ask the group how many male teachers did you have in between kindergarten and junior high, not very By many. By time you say, yeah, and 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 I've kind of come up with you know uh, informal, you know, answer to that is about one to one point five on average, uh, yeah. male teachers. Some men never had any male teachers, unless maybe they went to like a Jesuit Catholic school or something, but most guys, if they're lucky, had one male teacher. So basically. What that means, for example, just to to graduate from second to third grade, not only did little boys have to learn their reading, writing, and arithmetic, they probably had to learn how to please a woman. And so one of the things with a lot of the guys I work with is that they're constantly trying to please women. They're trying to be different from the bad guy they've heard women complain about, and, and they're trying to do everything right so women will approve of them. Now... I, I teach dating classes, I teach relationship classes, and one of the things that I found with most men in a relationship, because they're trying so hard to be different from other men, that, that they tend to be fairly spineless and and, and not very present for the woman. And, and, and most women tell me, I don't want a guy who's trying to please me all the time. I want a guy who will just tell me the truth, who will just, you know, tell me what he's gonna do and then do it and follow through on it. And so, you're right. For for a lot of the men that I work with, and perhaps a lot of the men listening to this, part of what we have to do is not only get comfortable with, but embrace our masculinity, embrace the male side of us. Because contrary to the messages that i heard in the sixties that everything about men was bad there's a lot of good things about masculinity and and i define masculinity as that part of us that that does i I define the feminine as being done to and the masculine is doing and we all have masculine we all have feminine traits but if we if we lack the masculine trait that allows us to do to stand up and do what's right to take action to deal with problems head-on to have that kind of integrity we've got to problem. So to kind of lead that into to, uh, your earlier question, what do we do to start working on who we are? Since I, I primarily work with men now, my, my background's in marriage and family therapy, but because of my book, most of my practice and business is with guys. Um, one of the things I encourage men to do is consciously connect with other men. And, and I simply put it, Go do guy things with guys. And that that can be anything. I don't care if it's a Bible study, a poker night, you know, rock climbing, bicycling, racquetball, you know, whatever. Go spend time with men. Our, our, Our male forefathers spent the majority of their day with men and you don't have to, you don't have to go back many generations to find that now most boys grow up without much masculine energy around them and i think if you look around at at younger generations um, if you look at young adults and teenagers if you look at a lot of the guys they're they're really passive and really um non-assertive and and whereas the girls are are almost dominant and aggressive so the men have to re- regain that masculine self and i don't mean becoming you know the dominant asshole jerk in fact i talk about becoming an integrated male where you can be so conscious that you use your masculinity not only to to bring out your honest strong self but you also bring that protector provider trustworthy self into your relationships into work and career so as you say as distasteful as it may sound we need to embrace our masculinity
0: One of the things that you talk about is being conscious of what your needs are and taking personal responsibility for getting those met. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, In fact, you you just gave my definition of maturity. Okay. Okay. a mature person takes full responsibility for their needs and for getting them met. Now, an immature person, like a child, can't do that. When you're a child, you are dependent on other people to meet your needs. So, as we become adults that's the hallmark of adulthood is we start taking responsibility responsibility for our actions responsibility for our needs now that doesn't mean you meet them all by yourself because in fact I think the most mature people create a number of what I call cooperative reciprocal relationships and these cooperative reciprocal relationships are conscious relationships in which everybody involved is getting their needs met in one way or another and, and we need actually many of these in adult life. Um, uh, for example, when somebody comes to the dentist, they're forming a cooperative reciprocal relationship. They have an overt contract. The, the, the patient comes in and says, doctor, I've got a problem or I need a, a cleansing or my teeth clean, or whatever. They have a need that they're coming to get met. Well, the dentist is getting his needs met or her needs met as well. They're, they're, they're running a business. They're charging for that. They're, they, the income that comes from that pays for the business and it pays the dentist's bills and allows him to drive a car and live in a home. So there's a reciprocal contract that both people benefit from. Now, we can have those kind of relationships that are purely on a personal level, the friendships, with a neighbor, with a a church group, with a spouse, with extended family, where everybody involved is consciously getting needs met by being in that relationship. And we can also have a a number of professional relationships where we actually pay people to help us get our needs met, Um, whether it's going to the dentist, getting a massage, going to the doctor, going to the car mechanic. Those are reciprocal cooperative relationships. Now, mature people consciously create those in every area of life in which they have needs, in which they, you know, have needs that they need help getting met. They don't try to do it all by themselves or they don't repress the need. Now, another thing mature people do is that they're constantly evaluating those relationships and they're ending the ones that no longer work that no longer serve that purpose. Now that that's kind of scary at times if if one of those relationships is a friend or a partner or even a family member or or a patient. Um I've fired Numerous clients. I don't have to do it very often, but I've fired clients because it wasn't a a cooperative, reciprocal relationship that was working, at least on my end. And if I sense it's not working on my client's end, uh, we'll talk about that and look at what we need to do different or do we need to terminate that relationship. So that's my definition of maturity.
0: Um, One of the things you talk about, and this is a, I'm going to put you on the spot for some verbal skills. Oh, okay. All right, because we're big, we're big on verbal skills. So okay. one of the things you talk about is the need to be able to experience and express emotion. Right? Everybody mm-hmm. has that need, and a lot of times, if if with the nice guy syndrome, you suppress emotion because you perceive that that's not very nice and it will upset people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's do a hypothetical here. I'm angry because okay. of something. That has happened. Okay. And so give us the verbal skills of what, what do you recommend that I say that gives me the ability to express the anger, but at the same time, preserve the relationship
1: okay um we might even have to get a little bit more specific with the and maybe we can come up with two or three different scenarios in which you're angry in because it might you know what you say to your partner might differ for i mean to like a marital partner might differ from what you might say to a patient um or or to somebody that's working for you um but but let's let's kind of even just break it down a little bit and then, then we'll kind of get into to the verbal part of it um Typically, when we're angry, we're feeling done to. We we feel like something or somebody has done something to us. Now, in reality, that may or may not be true, but but our anger is is a result of that. Okay. So one of the first things we need to do is just even ask ourselves, why am I angry? You know, oftentimes we, th- whenever we're angry, we always we always believe our anger is completely justified. Um, And but but a lot of times it's it's a projection of old baggage we might have. It's a projection of us maybe being in that persecutor part of the victim triangle that we thought we've done something nice for somebody, they didn't adequately appreciate us, and now we're angry at them, right? So we, we assume the anger is is appropriate and well deserved, but it actually may just be coming out of an erotic place. So it can be helpful to actually when we're angry, ask ourselves, what is it that I'm angry about? Um, and and sometimes that's helpful just to take a moment and kind of check in with yourself of what you're angry about. Now, I tell people that there are three different emotions that often get called anger, which is actually I think unfortunate because I'm al- I'm actually pretty big on words and using words to describe things accurately. Now the the, the three different emotions or expressions of emotion that, that get confused. One is anger itself. Now I, I say that anger is a healthy, life-preserving emotion. It's what is what allows us to take action when truly there's need for action, either because we've been violated or assaulted or, or threatened in some way. Now the two other things that get often get called anger that aren't really anger. Uh, one is resentment Now, resentment is what is just things that have built up inside of us, those little bricks of resentment that build up over time because we've taken things we shouldn't take. We haven't had good boundaries or we've given too much and we didn't ask for bad. You know, resentment is a whole different thing that usually comes out in passive aggressiveness or a victim puke type behavior. That's not healthy. That's not anger. Now, the other emotion that often gets confused is rage. Now, my definition of rage is when the past is being projected onto the present. And rage always comes out of a place of feeling helpless. And it usually goes back to our earliest memories in life where we had no power, we truly were helpless. And then we learned over time to perpetuate those same states of being either because we don't set boundaries or we tolerate bad behavior or we don't ask for what we want and the way that you can usually tell rage is it se- usually seems way out of proportion to whatever just happened right so some somebody has a minor complaint and you blow up and and you're screaming and yelling at them and and threatening them that's rage something from your past felt like what just happened here, and you brought all of that from your past, projected it onto the present. Now, in terms of, of those dynamics, if, if we're experiencing rage, and if we have a little bit of self-insight, hopefully we can ask ourselves, man, I, I, I overreacted there, I, I blew up, I lost it. What story is that telling me about me? See, it's good to ask that question. What story was my uh, overreaction telling me about me? The same thing's true of resentment. You know, when when you've been passive aggressive or you gossiped or you hurt somebody or you really didn't mean to hurt them, but you, you did anyway, ask yourself, all right, I'm feeling resentful. What is my resentment telling me about me? And it may tell you I need to set boundaries or I need to ask more clearly for what I want. But when it comes to the anger, why don't 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 we come up with a scenario possibly or scenario two, and maybe we can talk about some words that would be appropriate expression of anger to deal with those situations.
0: Okay. Maybe uh, let's take a a management uh, deal where a situation of a regular common occurrence. Let's say you have a team member who has gotten into the habit of showing up late, Okay, and it's disrupting the office, it's disrupting patient flow, it's really messing things up, and it's it, you know it's upsetting to everybody on the team.
1: Okay, now I'm a big believer in most things are, are, are you, that you're going to deal with them better sooner rather than later. Okay, because if you if you anything you put off dealing with, you're building up steam, right? There's there's energy growing behind, and that's when you may get more of a, a resentment or a rage response right. uh, rather than just a direct. Now. One of the things I ask people to, to think about it, I, I tell them, if you had absolutely no fear, how would you handle a particular situation? And I, and I always ask myself that. When I have a touchy situation or a situation that's causing me anxiety, I'll often ask myself, well, when, when I, however long it takes me to think to ask myself this question, if I had no fear, what would I do in this situation? And, it, and it's usually one or two sentences directly to the point with no shame, no judgment, and, and, and it's usually – your mind can usually be really clear if you have no fear of a person's reaction. So if you had no fear of the person's reaction, you'd probably say it as simply as, I need you to show up for work on time. Got It'd it. probably be that simple or maybe maybe after a couple of times they show up late, take the person aside where there's nobody else around and say, "I noticed you've been late a couple of times recently. We need you to be on time. Is there a problem we can help you deal with so that you can be on time?" Now, there's no shaming of the person, no judging of them, no no, you know, going off on them, no letting too much steam build up. You know, you're affecting everybody else and everybody else, you know. Th- that's not necessary. Um, one of the things I think one of the things is most lacking in the workplace, and I don't know if because the workplace is filled with nice guys or or just filled with so many regulations that everybody's afraid of violating some regulation. Um, but I'm a big advocate of telling people what it is you need them to do, being clear about it, help making sure they have the skills and the training necessary to do it, and then giving them feedback how they're doing if they're doing it well, Give them that feedback if they're not doing it well, give them that feedback, but also help, you know, give, make sure they get the skills to do it. And if the person just doesn't, can't do the job, well, you know, you fire them, you, you move on. But I, I get when you're a nice guy, we don't like firing people, but it's, it's actually much more loving if you would just address the issue right up front and say, I need you to show up on time. Is there some problem that's preventing you from getting here on time?
0: So I, you know, in the context of, of what you talk about, the, the opposite of nice guy syndrome is somebody then who is really clear on what their needs are. And, and in this case, in a management s- uh, situation, they're very clear with the people around them about what their expectations are so that people are clear what they need to do in order to meet those expectations. Because I can tell you, there are a lot of nice guys out there who don't make the expectations clear.
1: Mm-hmm. They
0: cater They serve, they pay, they do all these things, they're nice to their team, and then they're always disappointed because the team never lives up to whatever their expectations are, and then they play the victim.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and again, that's that whole rotting and middle management thing. And, and I know, as I said, I'm a recovering nice guy and I, I'm still learning those skills of being clear, direct, straightforward. And, and I find consistently people do appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm building, I'm, I'm having a new website built right now. And I, I have um, a friend of mine doing some consulting work with me doing a lot of the the graphic work and and you know helping with the structure of the website and being a liaison and it's invaluable and what I found is he always tells me how much he appreciates it when I send him a list of all the, the you know, the, the the points I want him to deal with in the order I want them dealt with. And, you know, that, that sounds so simple, right? Just just send him, you know, let him know exactly, here's what I want done, here's the order I want it done in, and whenever I send him one of these lists, he writes back, thank you, you know, for the working points. I, it gives me a direction to go. I'll get right on it. Whereas if I was more vague about it and say, well, I kind of want to get this done with the website, and maybe when you have time do this, he actually would feel less secure and, and less directed. So, yeah, there's value in letting people clearly know what we want, what we expect, and even what the consequences are if they don't do that. I think people feel safer within those boundaries and parameters.
0: So, you know, maybe you could give us in summary the, if you had this, I know it's, you can't simplify a prescription. <laughs> but if you were going, but, but let's try anyway. Right? Let's try anyway. If you know, in the in the context of what we've done here today, and you've done a beautiful job of describing it, if you were to give uh, everybody nice guys, nice girls, or you know, just people in general that might have a tendency in some of these areas, or or maybe they do and they don't know they do, if you had two or three main things, they'd say, you know what, this is really if. You need to check these areas and here's what I'd highly recommend that everybody do to stay or become more healthy what would those be
1: well yeah let me give you a couple one and and we've talked about this quite a bit during the interview but but let's let's make it a prescription tell the truth consciously work at being an honest person now I don't I don't you know people we, we get so caught up in honesty and but my definition of, of, of Of dishonesty is anything but the whole truth right be a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of person you know to kind of put this in in a personal way in a relationship way um, I I, I became single about nine years ago and I I reentered the dating world after being married for 25 years and I wasn't very good at it so I had to learn how to date But I also applied a lot of what I've been learning in my own personal recovery as a nice guy. And one of the things I started doing over time that when I would date a woman and it looked like we were going to start seeing each other exclusively is that I I told her, I said, "Here's, here's what you can count on from me. I said, number one, I'll be honest with you. What I tell you will be true. You won't have to guess. You won't find out later. It was only part of the truth. I'll tell you the truth. And because I said, I haven't always been an honest person, but that's my intention to be an honest person. Number two, uh, I'll be transparent. You won't have to guess what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what's on my mind, what I want, where I'm going, what I'm going to do, what I expect of you. I'll be transparent. And I tell them, and I'll be conscious. I'll pay attention to me, to you, to us, what's happening between us. I won't avoid things. I'll be present and I'll be conscious. And I said, and as a guy... I'll set the tone and I'll take the lead. I said I won't try to control you, I won't dominate you, but I'll have a plan. Instead of saying, "What do you want to do tonight?" I'll say, "Hey, let's go do this." And then I'll be flexible to, you know, negotiating that. Now, what what really hit me was over a period of time of dating is is a number of different women after just a few weeks of dating me and after I'd spelled out that's what I'll do in this relationship, they said, "You need to write another book." Because men need to know what you're doing because I've never been with a man who did those things, who was honest, transparent, who was conscious, who had set the tone. Now, if you think about it, shouldn't that be the basics of what we're all doing? Yeah. And so whether we're talking about personal relationship, work relationship, that'd be where I'd start being honest. And, and the way I started doing that is I would listen to that little voice. And I know the cartoons of the devil on your ear. I started listening to that voice that said, tell it this way. Or leave this part out. Or make up this story to go with it so they won't be mad at you. And whenever I'd hear that voice, that was my clue that said, tell the whole friggin' truth. Don't hide anything. Don't hold anything back. It makes people feel safer. It lets them trust you. um, and, And it just, it alters Relationships from the ground up, so that would be where I would start. Would be telling the truth, and the second one is is one we already talked about is beginning to take full responsibility for your needs. Consciously make your needs a priority. Um, make a bucket list of things you want to do, things you want to try, things that you know adventures you'd like to have, and consciously surround yourself with people that can help you get your needs met. So that'd be the two places I would say are a good conscious place to start.
0: Excellent. You've uh, provided a a tremendous amount of insight, and I think I would echo the sentiments of anyone who's listening that they probably need a lot more of Dr. Robert Glover. So (laughs) with that, let me just uh, do another reminder. The book, the first book, I'm, I'm waiting to hear the title of the second book, I assume you're going to write it, but the first book we've been talking about today is is entitled No More Mr. Nice Guy, A Proven Plan for Getting What You Want in Love, Sex, and Life, available on Amazon and just about everywhere else. I mean, it's it's, uh, widely available and uh, great insight. So what are you going to call the second book?
1: Well, the, the second book is in process. The working title is All the Way In. And uh, it's, it's written, still directed at men, about showing up and being all the way in in their intimate relationships. So um, that, that is in process. Can't, can't give you a promise of when that will be done, but it's coming along. And, uh, and if people want to just stay up to date with me, if they want to check out my website or get on my newsletter, uh, my website right now is no com. And they can just Google Robert Glover, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And as I said, I'm having a new website built, and it will be drglover.com. So uh, depending on when they're listening to this interview, if they go to nomoremisterniceguy.com and don't find me or don't get redirected, try drglover.com.
0: Very good. Dr. Glover, uh, I, and I say this in the context of what we talked about today, thank you for not being a nice guy and uh, for for sharing your wisdom with us. Very insightful and very helpful. Thanks for being our Crown Council Mentor of the Month this month.
1: Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it.